This is our Good Wednesday message. Um, we're going to start, you'll never guess where, in the book of Luke. Um, but then we're going to spread out. Um, we're going to, tonight, examine and explore, I guess, something a little different. We're going to talk about the seven last words of Jesus before he died. I don't know if anyone's ever done that before. Um, I haven't. I haven't heard it. But um, Or the, the seven sayings of Jesus on the cross. I know it would probably be better maybe as a series. Uh, we could dive into a little more, but uh, maybe, maybe someday when you've forgotten about this message, we'll bring it back, break it up. But so this um, lesson or whatever, we'll, we'll go across the Gospels and by lining them all up, um, as you know, each person had a different view and um, you know, different things are recorded in different ones. So lining them all up, there's seven things that Jesus said from the cross. And we get a clearer picture of what was said and done. And the first thing he says is, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Um, today, um, shalt thou be with me in paradise. That's number two. Number three, woman, behold thy son. Uh, number four, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Number five, I thirst. Number six, it is finished. Number seven, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. So I study this. Why spend um, time on this one? I think it's interesting. Okay, so that's what we're... <laughs> and number two, these are the last words that Jesus spoke before his death and knowing Jesus. Um, nothing he says is just for the fun of it. Especially on the cross when words are hard to come by and it's hard to do anything. So these are important, important things and there's things that we can learn from it. And we can see the things that he addressed from the cross. Um, forgiveness, salvation, relationships, uh, abandonment, distress, triumph, and reunion. And these are some of the, um, the thing, themes and some of the things that we deal with on a daily basis. And it can show us how, even on the cross, how Jesus dealt with them. So we're going to, most of these are short statements because um, he didn't have a lot of strength, didn't have a lot of breath. So speaking was a challenge. Uh, I could go into all the science if you want, maybe another day of the cross. But it was hard to breathe. And basically, you know, that's what killed them was the, they, they could no longer catch their breath. And, and um so everything that he says is very uh, important and very on purpose. Intentional is the, the hipster pastor word that we would use. Very intentional. So we're going to, um, we can gather because you know, there wasn't a lot um, recorded that there probably wasn't a lot said. He probably wasn't going to a big old sermon on the, the mount type deal. So um, most of these statements are pretty short. We're going to, Jump right in because there's a lot of ground to cover, but I'm setting this up. Jesus has been arrested. He's been betrayed and denied by Judas. He's been abandoned by most of the disciples. And through an elaborate series of events, most of us are familiar with Jesus finds himself nailed to a cross and hanging there for everyone naked and bleeding for everyone to see, dying for the sins of the world. And the first thing he says on the cross is, Father... Forgive them, for they know not what they do. Luke 23, verse 34. 
And Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And they parted his raiment and cast lots. Jesus has just been crucified. He has nails in his hands and his feet and searing pain going through his body. He's bleeding. He's naked. He's vulnerable, exposed for everyone to see. And the first words that he says is, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And if that is not amazing, I don't know what is. These people were in the the very act of putting him to death, and he forgave them. And some of us will hold on to grudges for 40 years because someone said something and we took it the wrong way. But Jesus was literally being killed by these people, and he said, forgive them. They don't know what they do. Even on the cross, Jesus modeled forgiveness. They spit on him, they mocked him, they whipped him, they crucified him, and still he forgave. The word father there is uh, the word Abba, which you probably heard before people say that it means daddy as a child would, you know, when they learned how to speak, you know, in English, they start saying dada, mama, right? That's how they learn how to speak. And in um, the Jewish culture, they would say Abba or Ima, um, which is dada or mama. And that's how they learn to speak. And this was, that's where the word comes from. And so, and people say that that's what it means. And as a, in a sense, that's right. But in our culture, in our language, when we grow up, we don't usually call our mothers and fathers mama and dada anymore. Uh, but in the culture of Jesus' day, Abba was still used by adult children for their fathers. It was a, a term not of childishness, but a term of respect and closeness. It's polite and serious, but it's also something familiar. And most people around this time period, when they prayed, they wouldn't necessarily use that, that word, that um, father or Abba. But when Jesus showed up, that's how he prayed. That's how he taught his disciples to pray. And um, there, he taught us that there, there is a God who is as close and dear as a father should be. Even closer. All 17 prayers recorded by Jesus start with Father or Abba. And here he is on the cross dying and, and bleeding and still he prays like that. What an example he's given us. No matter how bad a situation we find ourselves in, God is still that close. No matter where you find yourself, you can still call on God as your father. And then he says, he says, Father, forgive them. Who is them? It's either the soldiers who did it, uh, the Jews who condemned him, or the crowd who demanded that he be crucified or all of the above. I think it's all of the above. In the Bible, most of the time, forgiveness comes um, when something else is done. We respond to the grace that God offers us, but there's something we do on our part to receive that um, forgiveness. Forgiveness comes from God, but generally in order to receive it, there's an act that needs to be done on our part. Hebrews 9 and 22, it says, And almost all things are by the law purged with blood, without shedding of blood is no Remission or forgiveness. First John 1 and 9 says, if we, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Acts 2 and 38, we know, Peter said to them, repent, be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. So there's a, something that's done in all three of these verses in order to receive that forgiveness. But in this case, when Jesus is on the cross, he's offering forgiveness for this act that they've done, putting him to death, whether they ask for it or not. And that is pretty incredible. 
There's no record of them repenting and them asking for forgiveness, but he extends that. Why did Jesus pray this? He says, Father, forgive them. When before in, the, in Luke, a guy came through the roof and he said, your son, your sins are forgiven. Why, why this time does Jesus say, Father, forgive them? Why does he do this in a prayer? Why did he just say, you know what, guys? I forgive you. Do you ever think of that? Or was that just things like that? Luke 6 and 28, Jesus is teaching his disciples. And he says, bless them that curse you and pray for them which despitefully use you. So Jesus is on the cross and he prays for them. And, and by doing so, he honors his own teaching. I, and I don't know why, but when I realize this, to me, that's something that's incredible to me. He, he modeled his own teaching so much that even while he was on the cross, he's, he prayed for them. And in this time, this time period, it's always, it's always an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And there were constant wars and rebellions and, the, and retributions for anything that was done. And the disciples and followers of Jesus, they were expecting a rebellion and an uprising and a throne and a kingdom to be established. But instead... Here he is on the cross, and there's, there's no retribution. There's no, you know, come back, your disciples, and, and slaughter these people. Don't, there's none of that. He says, forgive them. There's not going to be any retribution for the act that they've done. He's, he's changing everything. He's reversing all the, the ways that they think. And he, he taught all of this stuff before, and now he's living it. He said, I can't pray for those who hurt me. And he said, yes, you can. Watch me do it. This is how you do it. He loves his people so much that even when he was on the cross, he's still teaching them how to do it. I think that's pretty cool. It's still counterculture today. We glamorize the Wild West, if you will. You know, we love the Westerns and justice being served. And videos people share of someone getting what they deserved. You know, they wronged me or they're going to get it. Or, and then politics and stuff. Everyone's canceling everyone and everything about something that whatever. Just so they can prove that I'm whatever. I don't know. Okay, But that's, that's how we are still. Forgiveness isn't something that we hear preached a lot or, or lived a lot. Or something we, we do so much as, as we should. And the radical forgiveness that Jesus models here on the cross should be very much part of our lives too. That's what he showed us how to do, forgiveness. The second thing Jesus says on the cross is, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. And we could have spent all day on forgiveness there. See, it would have been fun. Uh, we got to move along. Luke, Luke 23 and 43. Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. So the setting Jesus is still on the cross. Only a few verses later, he's but now he's being mocked. He's being he's being ridiculed. Insults are coming from four different places. The crowd, they're saying things like, Oh, I, I thought you were gonna destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Ha <laughs> ha! If you are the Son of God, come down then. The crowd's saying that. The religious leaders are saying, oh, he saved others, but he can't save himself. And the soldiers, 
you know, they offered him some wine and vinegar and said, oh, king of the Jews, come save yourself. And even the criminals were being crucified, too. And this one just kind of blows my mind that you would be in, in, in a place literally dying and go along with the crowd still and mock someone else. And it just seems crazy to me. But one of the one of the other criminals on the cross, he says, oh, save yourself and, and save us, too, if you're really the Messiah. So all of this insult and, and mockery is coming from all these different places. And Jesus is literally dying on a cross for the sins of the world, for these people. And, and all, all of the mocking that they're throwing at him is all about his saving power. If you can save others, you should be able to save yourself. And they're, they're mocking his you know, saving power. And if there's one thing Jesus is known for, it's saving. Jesus saves, right? That's what he's known for. And this is what they're mocking him with. And I think uh, as a person, that's one of the most frustrating things. You know, there's something that you know I can do. And people say, you can't. You know, I'm high school and stuff. They'd be like, oh, you got the Holy Ghost or whatever. Speak in tongues. Oh, speak in tongues right now. I'm like, I'm not. No. You know, has anyone ever done that to you? Prove it right now. And you're like, it's frustrating because you can do it, but no, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> and Jesus handles it probably uh, differently than we probably would. He doesn't get frustrated. He just lets them talk. He lets them say whatever it is they want to say. But then one of the criminals on the cross beside him speaks up. One of them is, is mocking him, and the other guy speaks up and rebukes the first one. In verse 40 of Luke 23 and the other answering rebuked him, saying, Dost, or do, do you not fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation? He says, what are you doing, man? Don't you fear God at all? You are no, like, you're dying just as well. Who do you think you are? Why are you doing this? And then this man on the cross, he does three things. He confesses his guilt. He acknowledges Jesus' innocent, innocence. And he shows that he's aware of his spiritual need. In verse 42, 41 to 42, he says, um, talking to the other criminal, says, he says, if and we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. Like we deserve this. This is our punishment for what we've done. So he confesses his own guilt. And then he says, but this man hath done nothing amiss. And this guy's done nothing Nothing wrong. He acknowledges Jesus' innocence. And then he says to Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. He shows that he's aware that he needs salvation. He's aware of his spiritual need. And this man, he's heard, he's heard the taunts from the others. He's seen Jesus' reaction, um, which was nothing. Most of us would have got a little upset and started yelling back or something. Defending ourselves. He's witnessing this whole thing and he, he can't go anywhere. <laughs> like he, he has to witness this. And he's heard he's heard Jesus' prayer for forgiveness for the, the people that have done this, and he's watching and he responds in faith. There must be something different about this guy. He's not acting like the rest of us. He's not reacting to any of this stuff. And Jesus responds to him. I think sometimes when we see things on spiritual things like if, if I do this and Jesus will do that. Um, like, like somehow we control God by doing things. If we shout um, loud and long enough, he will respond. 
If I, if I say this certain thing, he will answer. And, um, you know, if I, if I give, he'll give back more or something. You know, we, we have this thing where we kind of just initiate it always. And God's obligated to do something back for us. And even in this story at first glance, it looks like Jesus responds to this, to this man and says what he says because of what the man said. But it starts with the man responding to Jesus. And that's something that we can miss. We worship not so the glory will come down and we'll have one of those services. We worship him because of who he is. We respond to him first. And the result may be that the glory comes down and we have one of those services and everybody's rolling around and swinging from the chandeliers or whatever, but that doesn't happen because we do something. We, we respond to him first. God always initiates it. We give not so God will give something back to us, but we give because he's blessed us in the first place. And when we start doing it that way, I think it changes some things. God makes the first move always, and we respond to it. And then it happens. So he responds to Jesus, and then Jesus responds to him. And, and so this man, he's observing Jesus, and he, he sticks up for him, and he admits his own guilt, and he acknowledges who Jesus is and asks to be remembered in heaven. And Jesus says in verse 43, Verily I say unto thee today, thou shalt be with me in paradise. This is salvation he gives this, this man. And I'm not going to get into the whole, was he saved? You know, he didn't get baptized with the Holy Ghost or whatever. People say that. And Jesus obviously hasn't died yet and been resurrected, so I don't know why we do that. <laughs> the work hasn't been complete. The Holy Ghost wasn't poured out yet. So I do know what Jesus said to him. Yes. You will be with me in paradise. So I'm going to take what Jesus said as the truth. In the last minute, even on the cross, his last breath, he's trying. He's still saving people, even though he refused to save himself, as they all said he should. Well, only five more to go. The third thing he says on the cross, Woman, behold thy son. John 19, verse 26 to 27. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciples standing by whom he loved, he saith unto his mother, Woman, behold thy son. And he, then saith he to the disciple, Behold thy mother. And from that hour the disciple took her into his own home. This, Jesus addresses relationships here. The, the woman, or sorry, the disciple whom he loved is John. John refers to himself as this throughout his gospel. He doesn't refer to himself uh, as John, he's, I think to him he's doing it um, so he doesn't seem like I'm trying to get the attention. But even though we look at it like, oh, he's saying that Jesus loves him, but he loved everybody. But that's that's what he's trying to do. He's he's writing this gospel and it's about Jesus, and he's trying not to take any attention. And for whatever reason, uh, he doesn't like to refer to himself in the first person. So whenever you read through John, when it says that, that's who he's referring to. Um, and so we can assume that only John is close to the cross, close enough that Jesus can see him and speak to him without, you know, he turning his head or whatever, like he can't look around. So he's obviously close enough um, for him to see. And we don't know where the others are. 
Um, Peter's probably heartbroken still somewhere. I don't know. Judas is no longer uh, with us, I think, at this point. And so John, he's there with Mary. At least John is there. We don't know where the others are, how close they are or whatever. But he's there with Mary, um, his mother, Jesus' mother. And Jesus tells Mary that John is your son now. And John marries your mother. And John takes Mary to his house and takes care of her from from then on, we can assume Joseph has probably died by now. If this is the case, that Mary needs someone to look after her. But Mary, Mary has a unique relationship with Jesus that none of us will ever really understand. She's the only one. You know, she was his mother, but yet he was her savior. And he was dying for Mary's sins as well. But yet she carried him for nine months and she raised him and nurtured him and taught him to walk and talk and and all of that, like it's, it's a completely different thing than anyone else has ever experienced. And so when he says this to her, he says, woman, behold your son. He's kind of loosening that mother and son relationship that they've had. From, he says, from now on, he says, John is, John is your son. John is going to be that earthly, physical um, relationship that a mother needs. John's going to take that spot. Because that is, it's important. These physical, actual relationships we have with people, they're important. And Jesus knows that. And he says to John, I want you to take care of her like she's your mother. And he's, now he's moving into a different kind of relationship with Mary. He's, going, he's being your, becoming her savior now. So there has to be some sort of letting go from this is my little boy, this is my boy. You know, there's got to be a letting go if Mary's ever going to receive all of this salvation and all that. So he, he says, John's going to take that place for you. He's going to be that son that I'm not going to be able to be anymore. He's going to be that for you, and he's going to take care of you. And Jesus is dying. He's going to be gone. You know, he'll, he'll resurrect, yes, but then he will ascend to heaven. And, and, the, and the physical Jesus, the son that Mary had, will no longer be the same as he was, and things were changing, but yet he's still looking out for Mary. And I think that's kind of neat. And Jesus cares about our spiritual needs, yes, but he also cares about our emotional and our physical needs. And he cares about relationships, even on the cross. He's making sure that Mary is taken care of. And the fourth thing he says is, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And this one causes a lot of things. But Mark 15, we'll read that. Mark 15, 33 to 34. It says, when the sixth hour was come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, yes, which is being interpreted, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I cannot say that. I'm sorry. Abandonment. The sixth hour is noon, and so from noon until the ninth hour or 3 p.m., there was darkness. And generally, things are pretty bright during those hours. Uh, I haven't been to the Middle East, but I've been to Africa a couple times, and um, the climate's not much different. And those are the hottest hours of the day. You can drive around... Um, Anywhere in Africa around this time, you'll find people just having naps on the side of the road. There's guys that drive motorcycle taxis and they would just curl up under the tree and they're like, we ain't working because it's too hot. 
And they're just, between those hours, nobody was doing anything. It's so hot. And um, if you had to go out to get groceries, you would go out in the morning, and sometimes you'd be like, oh, let's go. It's like 2 in the afternoon. I'm like, oh, my goodness. And we're just dying of heat. And after 4, it kind of cools down a bit, if that's possible. So this is the hottest time of the day. This is the, the brightest time of the day. And when Jesus was on the cross, it was darkness. Like night during these hours. And that would have caught the attention of some folks, no doubt. And at 3 p.m. or so, it comes, the light comes back. And Jesus cries out with a fourth saying. And he says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And this one can cause some issues. This is Jesus was God. Why did he say this? Was there a separation between God, uh, the God and the man parts of Jesus? When, when he said this, what's going on? And if that's the case then that creates another issue because if God actually abandons the body of Jesus and Jesus is no longer divine and it opens a whole other can of worms, was he really the sacrifice we needed? So this is a thing that causes a lot of issues in doctrinal whatever. I'm going to try to explain it as best that I can in the most common sense way that I can. So Jesus, when he says this, he is quoting from Psalm 22 and 1, which is a psalm written about the Messiah. But in, in this psalm, it's, it's a psalm of lament, and we've talked about laments in, our, in, our, in the past, and it's one of those prayers of lament. And you have to remember that these psalms were written by people who were in covenant with God. And they were written for people who were in a covenant with God. God hasn't actually deserted him. When David says things like, you know, God, where are you? He knows that God hasn't actually abandoned him, okay? He hasn't actually deserted them. God had a covenant with Israel. He didn't actually, you know, he was there. He hasn't actually abandoned them. It's like, it's a figure of speech to express the feeling of being abandoned, alone, and forsaken. You know, when people say things like, I'm surrounded by people, but I feel alone. You're not alone, but you feel alone. You know, there's people everywhere, but you feel alone. It feels that way. God doesn't abandon us or forsake us, but there are times when it feels that way. So the psalm Jesus is quoting, like most psalms, is about a feeling. And in this case, at this part of the song, it's about a feeling of aloneness or abandonment. Things aren't working out. God, where are you? Right? Ever said that? You know he's, you know he's as close as a mention of his name, but yet we say things like, oh, where are you? Whatever. So this is what it is. And if, if we believe that Jesus was fully God and fully man, then there can be no separation. So, so Jesus is quoting this well-known psalm in a way to express how alone he feels. Maybe so the people around know what he's going through. They would be familiar with this psalm. And the neat thing about Psalm 22 is if you read it, about halfway through, it switches. It's a, it's a lament, like most laments. It's just things are terrible. All these things are happening. And then it switches to how great God is. And it seems like Jesus quotes the first part of this as kind of a way to say this is what it feels like now. It feels like there's an abandonment happening right now. But there's a celebration coming. And if we keep reading this story, 
we will see there's a celebration coming. And if you keep reading Psalm 22, it switches and there's a celebration that takes part in the second half of that. There's something coming. So he starts, he, he doesn't have the strength or the breath to quote the whole psalm. So he starts it. And if you're familiar with the psalm, you know that there's something coming at the end of this. And there are times when we feel abandoned, when it feels like God has forsaken us. But if we are in a covenant relationship with him, that is never going to happen. He will never leave us or forsake us, regardless of what it feels like. And Jesus modeled that on the cross. And this is as bad as it could, you know, this is as bad as it could get. As bad as it could look. This is as bleak as you could get. But if you keep reading Psalm 22, if you keep reading Luke, there's a celebration coming. Three days later, he wasn't abandoned. He wasn't forsaken. It looked like it, and it felt like it, but he couldn't be separated. In Romans 8, verse 38 to 39, I'll read in the English standard, it says, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So nothing can separate us from the love of Jesus. Even if sometimes it feels like it. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Sometimes it may feel like it, but there is nothing that can separate us from his love. And there's nothing that's going to separate God from Jesus because he was God. We won't be separated even if it feels like it. There's a celebration coming right now. It may feel like um, we're alone. It may feel like we've been abandoned, but we haven't. And there's a celebration that's coming even, even if we don't make it through. Even death itself cannot separate us from his love. Even if we pass away, there's a celebration like the other guy on the cross. Today you'll be with me in paradise. Death itself can't even separate us from his love. Nothing can. I think that's pretty incredible. We'll touch again on Psalm 22 in a bit. But the, fourth, the fifth thing he says is, I thirst. John 19, 28, and after this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. This is a, a cry of distress, and almost, he's almost at the end. He's drawing to a close. Everything's drawing to a close. The work is almost done. He most likely hasn't drank anything since the Last Supper, which was approximately 18 hours before. Uh, he's bleeding. He's... Um, one of the side effects of his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane was excessive sweating, great drops of blood, the Bible says. So he's pretty low in fluid by this point. And it's getting harder and harder to speak. His lines are getting shorter and shorter, and the breathing hurts. And Psalm 22 that Jesus already quoted, verse 15 to 16, it says, My strength is dried up. Like a pot shirt, and my tongue cleaveth to my jaws, or my, there's no moisture there. I'm thirsty. This is a very poetic way to say it. And thou hast brought me to the dust of death, for dust of death, for dogs have compassed me, and the assembly of the wicked have enclosed me, and they pierced my hands and my feet. This is about Jesus. This is a prophetic psalm about Jesus, and he is fulfilling this. He's thirsty now. He's living out this psalm, it seems. His mouth is dry. He's been pierced. He's in distress. And it's something to think about. Jesus on the cross became thirsty so that we would never have to thirst again. Think of the woman at the well. And speaking 
of heaven. John later writes in Revelation 7, 16 to 17, And they shall hunger no more, neither shall they thirst any more. Neither shall the light, uh, neither shall the sunlight on them, nor any heat. For the Lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them, and shall lead them into living fountains of water, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. He became thirsty so that we will never have to thirst again. Through the cross, through his work on the cross, through his death, his resurrection, we can come to him and, and never be thirsty again. To the woman at the well, he said, I'll drink from the water I have and you'll never be thirsty again. He did it. He paid the price. He took our sin, our shame, even our thirst. It's just cool. The sixth thing he says is, it is finished. John 19, verse 30. When Jesus, therefore, had received the vinegar, he said, it is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. And then they responded to him saying that he was thirsty by giving him some vinegar on a sponge, and he drinks some, and he says, it is finished. And this is a word of triumph. He came to, what he came to do has been done. What he came to conquer has been conquered. The price he came to pay has been paid. It is finished. This wasn't a cry of defeat. This is a cry of victory. This wasn't, oh, thank God it's over. This is, I have done it. It is finished. In Psalm 22 again, the last verse, I think it is, 31. They shall come and shall declare his righteousness unto a people that shall be born, that he hath done this. It's been done. It is done. It is finished. He has done it. This is a phrase of the, it's a single Greek word um, to tell a, no, sorry. <laughs> to tell his tie, maybe. To tell his tie. To tell his tie. It's, it's something that, a carpenter or a craftsman would say when they completed a project. They stepped back from what they were making and they would say, it is finished. It's done. Voila. As they would say in France, voila. It is done. There it is. This is it. I've done it. It's finished. Look at that. And they step back and this is it. It's a cry of accomplishment. I've done it. I've, I've paid the debt. I've won. It is finished. Everything I came to do has been done. It is finished. Triumph. And this is why we are here. And this is why we do what we do. Because Jesus paid the debt. Jesus conquered sin. He set us free. It is finished. Rejoice. It's done. He's victorious. It's finished. It looks from, from the outside, it looks like he's lost. It looks like it's all falling apart, but it looks completely different than it is, but what God things usually are. It's completely reversed, but Jesus has won. Things with God are rarely as we see them. To everyone else, a great man who's innocent died, and that was it. But Jesus was paying the price for our freedom. At the beginning of Jesus' ministry, when John the Baptist baptizes him. He says in Matthew um, 3 and 15, Jesus answering said to him, Suffer it to be so now, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. That he suffered him or allowed him to be baptized. It becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. And he fulfilled that. He fulfilled his plans, all righteousness. And then he said, 
It is finished. I've done it. It is done. And the seventh thing he says in Luke, he says, Into your hands I commend my spirit. Luke 23, 46, or 44 to 46. And it was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the earth till the ninth hour. And the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was rent in the midst. When Jesus had cried with a loud voice, he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And having said thus, he gave up the ghost. If we needed further evidence that Jesus wasn't actually forsaken on the cross, but merely felt alone, the last thing he says, Father again, the same way he started this. There's a closeness, a prayer, an intimacy in the word Abba or Father. It reminds us that we will go through times when it feels like we've been forsaken. It feels like we're alone, but we need to remember that the Father is still there all the way through. He said, I commend my spirit. Jesus died, yes, but Jesus died willingly. No one made him. No one forced him. He gave up his spirit. He gives it up. He gives up his life. John 10, uh, 17 to 18. It's the end of 17, the beginning of 18. It says, because I laid down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. He did this because he wanted to. Nobody forced him. He gave it himself because he loves us. And one more verse, Romans 5 and 8. But God commended his love toward us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us because he loves us. And this is what this time of year is all about. And I like chocolate. I like bunnies and eggs and baby chicks and new dresses and suits and ribbons and all that stuff and taking pictures of the kids and spring because winter's terrible. We like all that stuff, but this is what it's all about. But while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus came and Jesus lived and Jesus willingly laid down his life for us to save us from our sins. And we would be doing him a disservice if we didn't celebrate that fact, if we didn't accept that, if we didn't rejoice in that fact and thank him for it. So we're going to end this little, I guess it wasn't as long as I thought it would be. Let's stand. We're going to just take a few moments and we're going to just take some time and thank him for this. Now, normally we preach about the cross and we would have an altar call and people would come and whatever. Now let's, we don't need music. We don't need that. They didn't have it a lot of times. Let's just take some time tonight and just thank him for this. All these things that he said shows us what he was concerned about and what he was, what was on his mind. And let's just thank him. For, for this, that while we were yet sinners, he died for us.